I'd just like to take a second to thank David Obanian and James Lee for being Patreon supporters of this series. Thank you guys so much for joining the Patreon and supporting this show. Pair of legends, the both of them. Check out the Dark Tides Patreon. If you would like to also be a legend and support this show, thank you. Yes, ons with the show, yes. Welcome listeners to Dark Tides, a paranormal actual play podcast. I'm your host, show creator and narrator, Aubrey Lynn. Uh, with me, as always, are my wonderful cast, sometimes crew, always here, Chester and BJ. What's up, gamers? What's up? How you doing? Hey, I'm... Hey, BJ. Yep. Hey. Hey. Hey, man. Hey. Chester's got a haircut. Hey, yes. Yeah. It came up so quickly. Uh, it came up very quickly. <laughs> it came up as quickly as I came up the stairs. <laughs> well, well, like... Is well, that Chester? Is that Chester? Can't be. <laughs> Who's this? He, look, he looks about his, three years younger. His form factor is different. What's changed? He looks three years younger and like everyone out of American Psycho. <laughs> I'm sure that's a good thing. Uh, uh, I have not seen it. Anyway. Um, all right. They look like me. Just about the beards. I don't think any of them have Chess beards. Just looks exactly like himself now. I look like... I, yeah, kind of. I mean, this is how my mental image does, except with blonde hair. It's how my Facebook image is. Yeah. Anyway, Great. hi. My name's Chester and I play Heath. I play Heath O'Sullivan, a tier special forces operative and leader of their newest trainee team, codename Wormwood. With his incredible, versatile vertigo ability and being fey touched, Heath has shot through the ranks at tier and at 27 is the youngest to ever hold his rank and prestige. It's also my first time ever actually saying this live wow. and yeah. not in post-recording. Yeah. Because <laughs> my I, first ones are like, uh, yeah, Heath, oh, he's Irish. Oh, he might be Irish. I don't know. It depends, first, if, depends if the accent's good enough. Otherwise, I might just drop it. The first episode, like the last thing you cut from when you go into like the post-recorded intro is me saying, no, you won't. You'll do it live <laughs> like everyone else. And then it very obviously cuts to hey, you hey. with a different microphone. See, I didn't hey, notice guys. that it had cut. <laughs> I, I was like, oh, I did. I forgot. I didn't know that Chester had that sorted out already. It probably isn't obvious at all. It just no, is You're listening me. for it. Yeah. It's like, yeah, hey, there, there he is, that bastard. <laughs> he did that it. Cheating that cheating boy. boy. Yeah. Hi, anyway. BJ. Hi, Chester. My name is BJ Ingate. I play a 21-year-old emo with a short fuse and a fondness for chocolate milk by the name of Alistair Stern. Two years ago, after the mysterious dip, dip, dip appearance of his best friend... Not the friend, dip appearance. <laughs> not the great earnest dip appearance. Just scat your way out of it. He moved to the mainland from his hometown in the Hookbar Archipelago <laughs> and now works for the Tear Society. It appears after this very <laughs> strenuous fight, he had a bit of a seizure in the car drive. <laughs> He's just eating. He's just eating. Hello, some my name's Alistair Stone. I come from the. <laughs> <laughs> and he also works for the Tear Society, which is very secretive. And I'm going to refrain from pronouncing all of the long words that I have in that description. And I'm going to pass it on to my main man, Aubrey. So moving right on <laughs> to Aubrey. On. Hi, Aubrey. Hi, Hi Aubrey. I am Aubrey. I've already introduced this week. Um, I do, in fact, <gasps> and it's for get ready, guys. I'm ready. A new Facebook group. Um, which I am in charge of. That's so cool. Shut up, BJ. Okay. There's so many times we're like just editing. Aubrey's like talking and BJ just like says something. Aubrey's just shush, BJ. Now, anyway, back to what I was saying. Hush, BJ. It's always me, too. (laughs) I don't know why. I think it's because I interrupt you more often. I think it's you deliberately do it when I'm trying to like get to the next thing that's on my (laughs) list of stuff. No, you're right. 
Anyway, go to Facebook um, and check out the Paranormal Podcast Collective. Uh, it is a wonderful little uh, place for creators of paranormal podcasts. Uh, that means audio dramas, actual plays, uh, all sorts of different uh, genres of podcasting, but broadly but in the category crime. of paranormal storytelling. Yeah, no true crime. No true crime. No true get crime. Get out of here. It's where a bunch of different uh, creators get together. They post information about their shows, uh, announcements, news. They chat with fans. Um, they chat together. Fans chat with each other, share fan out, that sort of stuff. Uh, it is a group for discovering new podcasts that you might like if you enjoy ours. Um yeah, and for just getting along with other people who are keen on the same stuff. So yeah. check out the Paranormal Podcast Collective on Facebook. Yeah, I was about to just insult some of them, but I'm like, oh, they probably don't know us well enough to know we how should... well-meaning that is. Look, they, it's they... an act of love. I, I literally just <laughs> out of nowhere emailed a bunch of different podcasts and was hey, you don't know me. I'm not a stalker. Do you want to join my Facebook group? <laughs> you, want to, you want to join my guild? Look, I, I sent about, I don't know, 15 you emails. Join my party? <laughs> I sent about 15 emails and I'm very grateful to the ones that answered because I don't know how else to do that. But yeah. go, go ahead and check it out. You'll find um, some really fantastic shows over there. Uh, as the weeks go on, I'll give individual shout-outs to different shows. Um, and, yeah, you can go and check them out. I need my charger. All right. Keep going. Well, I guess but I've BJ got my Pad. charger in the room with me, but that's all right. He's time, left. Time for your fun fact. Time for my fun fact. I do have one this week. Uh, my fun fact this week is, is he going to come back through that door and interrupt me any second now? Yeah. Yes. Yes, there it is. Have fun cutting that out. No, never. Chester has started to cut a lot fewer of our garbled <laughs> mistakes than me going, cut that. Right. Which is good. I like that. Aubrey doesn't like that, but you know, I like that. I need to seem infallible. <laughs> I'm perfect! And they need to know it! I have no flaws! Not they, on the internet, They anyway. can't relate to me, and they shouldn't! No, it's not their job. I am the god of this world. Anyway, Beecher, your fun fact. My yeah, fun fact fun. this week is that Alistair has continued his uh, classical guitar training. And he is now, after two years of practicing, he's now a semi-competent classical guitar uh, enthusiast, I would say. Like, he's not, you know, he's not performance level. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, he, he can play some stuff. Uh, he, I think I'm imagining he's probably met, like, a another person in the tier society that can play guitar and they've, like, been tutoring him kind of thing. Uh, on their days off, and yeah, so he's kept it up, and he's he's pretty good now. He can actually play, and he's not scared to like tell people about it anymore. Hasn't played in front of anyone except his like mentor. Oh yeah, he hasn't been like busking in some London. Oh pubs. no, 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 no. Oh, but, there like, goes out our previous canon. He hasn't. He hasn't joined like an Irish folk band or something. Look, not yet, but. This is episode three. Mm. Like, anything could <laughs> happen in this time. scene. <laughs> Busking with the gnomes. Chester, your fun fact. Hey, man. Heath loves nougat. Okay. Yeah, no, I can see that. Heath loves nougat. Here's the thing. Nougat's in nougat? like... Nougat. 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 There's a T at the end. Yeah, but it's like French and they don't pronounce oh, the T. Anyway, so nougat's in like everything. You have a Mars bar, it's in nougat. It's in nougat, nougat's in there. <laughs> it is in nougat and nougat is in He it. gets his mask bar, he dips it in a cup. Dips it in his nougat. So here's an interesting fact. So nougat is basically the exact same thing as marshmallow. 
but there is different air content, different sugar content, but it's made of the exact same thing. So it's egg, it's sugar, and it's air, but mixed in different amounts and different speeds to get different things in there. Wow. And the reason why it's in everything is because they're selling you air. <laughs> And the thing is, like, the more air they can sell you in a chocolate bar, the less stuff there's actually in there, the better. Because if you squash nougat down, it's complete. It goes completely flat. But if you squash marshmallow down, it goes back up because there's so much more mass in, like, right. in it. Yeah, it's so much more squishy. And it's got gelatin in it as well. That's the main defining difference between them. But Heath loves nougat. Heath like buys the nougat bars. He doesn't like. He's not a big chocolate guy. But like, it's like yeah. he wants five percent chocolate, and like no more. And the rest, yeah, just- the rest is air. Yeah. It's nice flavoured air. It's like expensive bread. It's mostly air. <laughs> it's just bread in general. It's just holes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, there you I go. I wasn't expecting that or the information yeah. in that. A little mm. bit of a factoid, a little Thanks. bit of a... Mm. Who says you can't learn stuff listening to our podcast? Who said? Yeah, it's like it's like it's a true crime podcast or something, except yeah. all of those, I believe, are fake. I will t- I will claim that like everything they either talk the about. podcast is fake or the true crime was faked. Yeah, the true crime. Who's- so it's, it's a real podcast yeah. about a crime that was fake. Who's Ted Bundy? <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> All right. Nice. Um, I'll attempt to give a recap since I haven't done that for a while, and I used to do them a lot. So here we go. Uh, season two so far. Uh, Alistair was running around in some tunnels underneath the church. Uh, Disrespected the dead a lot and found a gun. Uh, Ernest was. Uh, his scientific into- name is Boomstick. Boomstick? <laughs> Which boom- he then uh, lost because it disappeared on him. Yeah, meanwhile, Ernest was bamfed into the void two and a half years ago and no one's seen him since. <laughs> Why are you talking about Ernest? I'm Heath. I know, but Heath really just did some more disrespecting the dead. Heath no, was Heath, also there, but he can fly. Heath he also had a bunch of different phone calls. Yeah, a lot of phone calls, a lot of upset people at him. Hey guys, he didn't are you enjoying any this? dead? Or would you like, like, do you want us think, to start the show now, or should we just keep going? Just cut this. Okay. Which means he won't. <laughs> He's really, it's like the Chamber of Secrets. All right, let's jump in. <laughs> Guaranteed way to keep something in the show. Just to cut it. Just to cut it. Now, out of podcast, <laughs> let's talk about this spoiler thing. <laughs> Mr. Pop. The formidable Tear Society sits on Whitechapel Road, London. At five stories of Victorian-era stone, the face of the society is severe. Grey pillars set into imposing stonework, lined with elegant windows. Over a hundred years ago, this was London's Royal Hospital, but it's now the centre for preternatural research in Europe. Its interior is stately, retaining the old hospital's tiled floor and high windows, its large iron staircases and rabbit warren of rooms and floors. But since its conversion, it's taken on a hint of the great European universities of old and modern bureaucracy. This can be seen in the wood-panelled meeting rooms, the plaques commemorating fallen agents, in the men and women wearing suits and lanyards, bustling to and fro with important documents and takeaway coffees. Alistair and Heath uh, step through the revolving front doors into the Great Hall. Uh, You have a secretary waiting for you, Alistair. You have been summoned to the round table to meet the heads of the Tear Society. 
Uh, Heath, you have been given uh, a few jobs to do. You have to go and file a lot of paperwork about uh, some of the damage caused. Uh, you've got to check in the weapons taken from... Um, what would you call it? What are those things called? Um, the dead the people? The quartermaster. Oh, the quartermaster. <laughs> Oh, right. The yeah. dead people. <laughs> I was like the skeletons. You got to go. You gotta go no, you got to go return your weapons to the lockup. Uh, mm. A few of those sort of things, and you are not invited to the meeting. Did <laughs> you want to say anything to Alistair first? He f- puts his like hands on his hips and is like, "Okay, well, uh, that sounds strangely severe. Uh, not yeah. too sure about that." Yeah. Mm. Um. Yeah, hey, so I've never kind of done this before. Like, the, yes, I've never been yes. in... Like, is there, is there like, some kind of secret procedure that I need to know? Or, like, am I going to am I gonna get in trouble if I wear the wrong something? I, I don't know. Is there... Heath delicately bats a fly out of the air. <laughs> uh, Heath puts a hand on Alistair's shoulder and looks at him and is like, You're right there, old boy. That was a bit. Of, that was a bit of a big, big thing. That was a bit bigger than what yeah. we were uh, going in for. Not what I saw. Not what I expected. But yeah, no, I'm okay. I, yeah. And uh, invisible guns. Yes. Yeah. I hope I don't get in trouble for that. Oh, you, that's probably what this is about. Oh, I'm sure. You probably we, we weren't. I told you not to touch it. I, I did. I, mean, I, I did say leave it. Like that's true. We weren't supposed to be involved in that. We were getting Hildebrand out. That's probably yeah. what this is about. Uh, main thing is uh, no white socks. Well, that's fine. I'm, yep, I'm yep, good on that. You're right. You're yep, right. Yeah, you're fine. all. You're in your usual uh, sh- like shades of black. It's good. Yep. Alistair has taken off the big jacket that he was wearing last time, and he just has like a very dark grey checked shirt, and then like a black coat over it with lots of straps. Somehow, <laughs> it's like Michael Jackson's bad. It's just zippers everywhere. Yeah, like like the his pants and his coat just have a lot of straps and things, and you're not entirely sure whether they're practical or if they're just aesthetic but mm. he's a strappy boy he's a strapping, strapping young lad he's a strapping young lad uh heath is going to brush his nose and notice someone who's waving him away to come and like start debriefing on stuff and he's going to turn to alistair and say main thing don't talk our turn stand up for yourself and what you did don't be a maggot about it it's a it's a fine line you gotta walk yep go self-respect Understanding situation. It's fine. Yep. Don't act the maggot. Okay. Well, okay. All right. Thanks, Heath. Yep. He's going to trawl away, uh, <sighs> like down one of the corridors. And as you hear, you hear off in the distance. I left my jacket. <laughs> <laughs> Alistair turns towards the boardroom and <sighs> takes a deep breath, straightens his shirt, runs hand through his hair. Okay. And he walks towards the door. The secretary who's been sent to collect you um, leads you through a couple of different corridors. Um, You're fairly familiar now with the layout of the society. It is old and dense. The layout of the floors can be complicated. A lot of things have been changed. Uh, Sometimes you do need a guide if you're going somewhere that you haven't been before. And they take you to the boardroom. Now, this is up on the third floor, an interior room uh, with large double doors. They uh, knock, poke their head in, and uh, usher you forward. As you step into this boardroom, uh, you realize that the room itself uh, is quite dark. 
there are uh, small side lamps lit, but the large windows have been uh, covered over with curtains. You are standing in what was probably once uh, some kind of office or even maybe a smoking room or something within the hospital. Uh, it is now the round table. In front of you is a very large, heavy set wooden table uh, in the round and there is a chair in front of you to sit. Uh, you are ushered to your seat and in front of you sits several members of Tears Board. These are the masters of the different um, divisions within the society. There is no uh, single leader of the organization. There is no CEO. Uh, everything is decided by this collective, this board, uh, the board of masters. As you sit and settle yourself, uh, you're offered tea and water, whatever you feel like, and you can't help but uh, inspect the figures sitting across from you. Some you already know, others uh, that you have never seen before. As you inspect them one by one, you are at first uh, rather relieved to see Charlotte Bell, who you've known for several years now after her involvement in um, the events that took place in the archipelago. She is the same as ever um, with her close-cropped hair, her dark blue suit. Okay. Uh, she is shuffling a number of different papers and reports in front of her and she eyes you over the top of one of them um, but says nothing. Charlotte Bell is, of course, the head of research. Uh, she is the head of your division, in fact. Uh, she is essentially your boss. Sitting uh, to her left is her sister, Anne, Anne Bell. Anne you have also met before. Anne is slightly smaller uh, than her sister, uh, with a slightly rounder face and uh, spectacles. She is wearing a fairly large oversized kind of cardigan, um, and she seems to be studying several books that she has brought with her. You can't really tell what any of them are. They're old, leather-bound, uh, journal-looking things, uh, but she's paying very little attention to what's going on around her. Anne Bell is head of archives and records, uh, and this is a place that you spend a lot of time as a researcher in the society's library. Uh, to her left, you see a man that you have glimpsed from afar but know very little about. This is Edmund Whitcliffe. Edmund Whitcliffe, on the other hand, is head of development. Uh, development, as you know, are responsible for the studying and application of the research. Uh, things like tools for agents' defence, uh, for tracking and monitoring different preternatural phenomena and the like. You also can't help but notice uh, that Edmund Whitcliffe is uh, working on a taxidermy bat at the table. He has a big tray in front of him um, with the bat pinned out. He actually seems to be removing uh, innards and uh, treating things as he goes. Uh, other people are kind of wrinkling their nose, and you can't help but do the same at the smell coming off this bat. Alistair, like, looks at it kind of not taking it in and then does a double take and then looks at the floor and then looks at the bat again. And it's like... It makes eye contact with the bat. <laughs> eye contact with the bat. Eye contact with Whitcliffe. Back to the bat. Back to the table. Yeah. I'll have a glass of water, please. <laughs> now, on uh, Charlotte's right is a man you have never seen before. He is very tall uh, and he's wearing an impeccable black three-piece suit uh, with a necktie and a silver tie pin. Uh, he is making 
uh, fairly calm, steady eye contact with you as he smokes. The only thing in front of him is an ashtray that is almost overflowing at this point as he seems to be continually chain-smoking. Alistair kind of repeats the eye contact and does a little nod. Yeah. Next is Cynthia Trill, who uh, you have heard of and her reputation precedes her. She is the head of public relations. Uh, Her job is to uh, be the face of tier two uh, media and potential uh, clients, governments, officials, this sort of thing. She is uh, quite small and petite with voluminous bleached blonde hair. She's on the phone uh, with it pressed between her shoulder and her ear while doing her nails with like a full manicure toolkit in front of her. And beyond her, there is a empty seat. The last member of the board is yet to arrive. However, you do have a guest sitting in. You see sitting slightly back from uh, the table, seemingly uh, absorbed in his own cup of tea, uh, is the Reverend David Pevensey, who uh, you know to be the Society's resident chaplain, uh, who you have met on a couple couple of occasions. Now, everyone uh, seems to be waiting rather impatiently. Uh, Not for you, as it turns out. Uh, They're waiting for whoever is to fill this uh, last chair. They are bickering back and forth. Charlotte clears her throat um, and sort of taps her hand on the table for attention. Okay. Well, we are still waiting on the head of defence, but let's get started with this, I think. Alistair? Thank you for joining us. Um, We've called this meeting to hear firsthand from you the events in Bruges. Now, this is of uh, some small matter of concern. Uh, Hildebrand was investigating the whereabouts of an item um, of great consequence to some of our investigations. Um, And we need to know where it is. Now, according to Heath's report, you have it, but cannot see it. Um, uh, Yes. Yes, that's correct. Uh, During the fight with the uh, creature... um, Edmund, will you stop poking the bat? Why did you even bring it? I was working on it and... I mean, these things have a time limit, you understand? The bat has a time limit. Yes. And the time limit can't wait for 15 minutes while we take care of this. I'm not disturbing the young lad, am I? You're disturbing I'm me. It stinks. doing my job. Cynthia pipes up. Just leave him to his bat, all right. Look, Thank you, Cynthia. Look, can I just... Everyone, I know that uh, these are generally fairly informal meetings. I know that we don't actually get together that often, but please, could we just have some decorum in front of our staff? Very well. Is that too much to ask, really? Stop poking the bat! Leave him alone! Cynthia, do not start. I know that you haven't been paying attention to anything. Anne, she turns to her sister. I know who his name is. It's, um, Heath. No, no. Heath's boy. Yeah, there we go. I'm paying attention. Charlotte turns to her sister, who has not looked up once from her book. Anne, we talked about you not reading in meetings. 
Anne kind of uh, gives a non-committal grunt and does not look up. Anne. Anne. <laughs> Edmund shoves... Anne! Edmund pushes the bat slightly further away. It's like, please, boy, do continue. Yeah. So as, as I was saying, uh, it appeared that Hildebrand was under the control of this creature and uh, during the battle he moved off at one point to try and open a... Uh, a grave site uh, and I was able to intercept him and incapacitate him uh, and in the process I found what he was looking for. Uh, in the grave that he was trying to get open there was a box, a tin box and I didn't plan to open it, I don't I think I, I must have slipped or I, I didn't I was gonna just leave it. Anyway, somehow in the middle of the battle, the lid came off and inside there was a cloth and sitting on the cloth was an old revolver, maybe 50s, 60s era. I didn't get a good look at it. You know, old, but not antique. And, and then it was, in my hand suddenly and I, I I don't understand what happened but I pretty much as soon as I saw that I had to help Puck because she was under attack by the uh, creatures that came out of the rift and so my mind was taken away from it and then when I looked back the cloth was empty and the gun that was in my hand was gone as you were talking, uh, the very tall man in the black suit, uh, Granger, he, still smoking, leans in, arms on the table, studying you. Charlotte looks fairly concerned by this. Uh, she shuffles through a few of her papers uh, and clears her throat. <clears throat> well, I mean, I think that's about what we feared. And you deserve to have some of the details. Are you certain you didn't drop it, lad? Yes. Uh, yes, I'm certain. I I would have remembered. It just disappeared. So These things can be awfully slippery. You never know. You know. I once found... <laughs> machine oil can be a terribly slippery... No, I... I'm sure. Very well. Uh, Put that wing on crooked. I don't need to. <laughs> Sorry, Edmund. sorry, sorry. <laughs> he puts the bat under the table. Uh, listen, Alistair. Yeah. I have been talking with uh, Maria. So, all right, here is what we have. Um, this revolver we think is something called a significant. Um, it's some kind of an object of power uh, is one term for it. In other words, it's an item that's been altered by a preternatural event and it's gained uh, supernatural properties. As a result, they're very rare, very rare indeed, and they can be exceptionally difficult to study. However, Maria believes that this particular one relates to the Ilios program that she was investigating in the archipelago. Right. So is it like the cube then? The one that... Well... That the Donist had. Maria believes so but we don't have any proof connecting these objects together or in fact 
the cube to Ilios yet. Uh, she is still working and, well, the retrieval of this item was supposed to be top secret. We sent Hildebrand, who is one of our most experienced uh, researchers and supposed to be low profile. Anyway, Maria has speculated that these sort of items tend to bond with a host of sorts. And now that might sound um, needlessly dramatic, but these items are extremely unpredictable. And, well, we need to see if we can actually study this item. Now, you say that you can't see it, but it seems to appear, disappear? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I... It was in my hand, and I could feel it, and I could feel it was it was real. It had weight. It felt like a real weapon, but there was there was something else, like you say. I don't know, I don't know what. And then I looked away at Puck, and then I looked back, and it was gone. But it wasn't back in the cloth. Like it, I thought it was still in my hand, but it was gone, and I couldn't feel it anymore. Like I I I, I thought it was still there, but it was it was gone. Like I couldn't feel it anymore, and. And I, this is going to sound crazy, but I heard something. I heard a voice. Hmm. Just briefly. And at this point, Anne Bell uh, looks up at you for the first time. And she says, you heard a voice? I know. I'm not making it up, I promise. No, no, this, this changes some things. At this point, um, the momentary silence is broken by the double doors slamming open and then slamming shut as a massive man strides into the room. Uh, Barrel-chested, bald head with a very large, luxurious moustache. He is very cleanly dressed in a shirt and tie uh, with suspenders, in fact. And as he strows in, he goes... Sorry I was late. Ah, there you are. We were wondering where you got to. Well, I'm not used to filling in. Um, He takes the chair that is still empty and sits down. Alistair, you know this man to be Stanford Warwick. This is uh, Heath's tutor. Uh, This man is one of uh, the very high ups in the defence. He is not the head of defence. She is still uh, absent, but he seems to be filling in for her. Uh, he sits, sits down, um, slaps his knee, and says, All right, what did I miss? Is this the boy? So this is this... And he starts, like, pointing around the room. This is the one about um, the the super soldier program where he was going to be, like, a living weapon. That's what we what we talked about, yes? Sorry? Um, wrong room. <laughs> um, uh, he, uh, Charlotte kind of uh, rubs her forehead... I guess. Stanford, nobody talked about that. You talked about that at great length. Nobody else talked about that. This is Alistair. Yes, no, there is no human weapon. Alistair is looking a bit more relieved now. He was was a bit worried about what they were going to do. Damn shame. Cynthia drops the phone a little bit and looks at the the newcomer. You mean Captain America? Ah, something like that. I think Could be. I think that's copyrighted. I'm not sure if we're allowed to do that. 
We're also in Britain, you know. Uh, there was a Captain Britain, I'm sure. There was. Damn yeah, I'm right. Sure I knew him. <laughs> I'm sure it was you. She's going to turn well, back to her phone. Well, <laughs> back in college, my nickname. Come <laughs> now, Warwick. We have a job to do here. Yeah, Charlotte holds out her hands. Both hands are quite his. All right. Wonderful. Everyone's here. Great. The point is, Alistair, it seems like whatever this item is, it's powerful, it's dangerous, it's rare, and we don't know what it does, and it has bonded itself to you. That makes it difficult to study. Um, Great. Now, Maria is still working, and we hope to have a little more information. But if she's right, and this item is related to Ilios and the archipelago, your hometown, in fact, that could explain why it bonded with you. Or it could have been just the first point of contact. It's hard to know. Well, this brings us to the crossroads of what to do with this situation. And at this point, uh, Granger uh, puts his cigarette in the ashtray and leans in again, and he says... I would like to um, take Alistair for study. I believe the safest way to deal with this would be to have him under complete surveillance, run a battery of tests, see if we can't figure out how this bonding process works. Potentially that will give us some good clues. Well, uh, what what kind of surveillance? Like, you, you're going to lock me up or something, are you? More or less. Well, face it, son, you are now a liability. But I didn't. I didn't. Yeah, mean I'm not saying to... that you meant to become one, but you are now one. You are a danger to yourself and to others. And until we I'm understand exactly anyone. that you know of. Anyway, that is my vote. Um, Warwick <laughs> scratches his chin and goes, "Hmm." I think we should put him in the field. I think that's what's going to do it. That'll draw it out, and then we'll know what it can really oh, do. Oh, here we go. It's a good plan. Mm, sure, it's a good plan. What's that smell? Oh, uh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Cliff, are you stuffing things no, at the table again? Not, not, no, nothing is here at all. Anyway, Stan. I say put him in the field. Of course you do. Look, Heath will back me up on this one, and I know how much you love Heath. In the field where? What am I going to do? I don't know. We'll find something for you to shoot. I, <laughs> I, don't, even, I don't even know where it is. Ah, that, that's the point. My theory is if we put you in some real danger, the, the adrenaline will kick in and it'll turn up. That's yeah, what guns are for. No offence. I don't really want to put my life on the line hoping that an invisible weapon that doesn't seem to exist will just suddenly come into my hand and ah, save me. But you won't have to do it. I'll put you in danger. <laughs> I don't like this plan. <laughs> oh, Charlotte. Charlotte. Oh, he's my new favourite character. <laughs> oh, yeah. I feel like Alistair likes this guy. Yeah. Apart from the fact that he doesn't like his plan. Charlotte is, like, banging on the table for quiet. She's, okay. Okay, enough. Look, yes, we could put him under surveillance and run tests. I think that is still a legitimate strategy. Putting him in the field, um, much less so, I think. Look, I think Anne and I 
both agree that we need more background research to know even how to approach this. So I think for the meantime, especially if it's bonded with Alistair, we shouldn't put him under any undue stress. And that goes for putting him in the line of fire, Warwick. What? Anyway, my vote is for some general observation and research. And perhaps it would be worth taking you back to what we know of the Ilios site, what we have been able to find. Maybe we will be able to see some kind of reaction in the item itself to the location. Yeah, listen, I don't really want to be stuck at home because of a gun that I accidentally picked up, but I would rather know more about what's going on uh, if some crazy spirit gun has bent binded itself to me you know I'd maybe like to know a bit more about what's going on so that that's okay with me yeah right. fine good he picks up the bat again alright uh, shall I guess alright well shall we have a vote is it scientific study or is it research and chaperoning um, are they murmur around the table um and you, you notice now that um, Reverend David Pevensey is quietly watching from the background. He hasn't been asked to give an opinion, hasn't voiced one yet. Uh, they chat together very quietly um, and Charlotte says, Okay, those in favour of the scientific method, raise your hand. Uh, Granger while lighting another cigarette, raises his hand. Um, So does Warwick and Cynthia. All right, that's three. All in favor of a research-based approach. Uh, She, Belle, and Whitcliffe raise their hands. Alistair looks around the room and realizes, you know, it's three to three and kind of looks at the Reverend, hopefully, (laughs) wondering what he's gonna do. Wordlessly, uh, Reverend David raises his hand and gives you a small nod. <sighs> okay, that is decided then. Um, now, not to say that we will not try and run some tests, uh, although we will not put you under any kind of house arrest, but for the meantime, I think you should you should get some rest, Alistair, and we will get back to you with whatever information we have, and I will talk to Maria about perhaps organising a trip back to Hookbar. Okay, thank you. And thank you all for your time. I, uh... Are you sure you don't want to try and shoot something with it? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. All right. Hey, look, I'll let you know, okay? Oh, that's fine. That's all I'm saying. Just, you know, really could could do something. Man, I wish I had a spectral gun. <laughs> that's what he'll say. <laughs> Man, I wish I had a spectral gun. Yeah... That'd be good. I'll bet you do, Stan. Now go back to your bat. Ha! He goes back to his bat. (laughs) Well, hello, listeners. Aubrey here. I just wanted to have a moment to quickly thank and shout out all of our Patreon supporters. Your encouragement and your support really make a big difference in the production of this show. Dark Tides is a real labor of love. It takes about 14 hours per episode in production time. And that includes my session prep, 
the recording process, Chester and BJ's editing, all of those sort of things. And that's just the main show uh, to say nothing of all of our Patreon bonus content, mini series, etc., etc. Lots of time and energy that goes into those things. And um, this can be a little tricky to justify because all of us are either working full time or studying and working. So getting the time to be able to put this effort in can be difficult. And those of you who are supporting the show, you help to make that happen. And you might have noticed uh, that we don't put ads on our show. This is because as listeners of podcasts, we don't really like to listen to ads. There are a lot of terrible, terrible ads out there and we don't want to subject you guys to that. So we would rather that this show be 100% listener supported. Um, And that brings us to an announcement that I want to make, which is that we are setting a new goal to reach 150 Patreon supporters by the end of this year, that is 2021, Um, because this level of support will actually let us take time away from our day jobs to be able to focus on making the show, to be able to continue to put out episodes at the quality and the rate that we are currently doing. If we can't reach 150 supporters, don't worry, Dark Tides is not going anywhere, but we might have to scale back how often we can release episodes and those sort of things to make it more sustainable for us in the long term. But if you are interested, our Patreon page has three different levels of support. Uh, one that is just a, a little support tier, another one uh, that is a medium tier that has some bonus content. Um, and a bigger one that has a heap of bonus content on it. So if you're interested, go ahead and check out the different support tiers and consider if you might like helping us keep this show on the road um, at the speed that it is currently at. Now we know that not everyone is in a financial position to be able to uh, support different shows and do those things. So if you're not in a position to be able to do that, we would just love you to be able to share the show with as many people as you can uh, on your social media, in person, with your family, your friends, your co-workers, whoever. Just getting the word out about the show makes a huge difference to us and our ability to continue to make the show long term. So if you can do those things to support us, that is a fantastic way to show your love for Dark Tides. We would love to be able to make storytelling and creating podcasts, uh, a bigger part of our lives and your support really helps us do that and continue to do it without using advertisements or sponsorship or any of those things. To be 100% listener supported really is our goal. So yeah, if you can consider how you might help support the show, that would be fantastic. But most of all, just enjoy the show. We love to make it for you and we love to hear your feedback and your comments. So keep those coming. But right now, I'll let you get back to the episode. You head down from this, you're on the third floor, you head down to the second, which is largely uh, small apartments for those members of tier that live on site as you do. Um, most of the young trainees or operatives that have a lot to do with what happens in tier itself are given the option of living on site. As you get down here, the room, the corridors are fairly narrow here. This would have once been wards uh, that have now been separated off into separate rooms. Uh, you come to your door, which is uh, numbered. Number 47. Uh, you open the door and your room is uh, narrow with dark timber walls and uh, thick carpet. It's 
small, but it's comfortable. Uh, there's a single large window at the end of the room that overlooks Whitechapel Road with a fairly good view. Um, the room holds a bed, a wardrobe, a small table and two chairs. There's a desk in one corner with some shelves for books and personal belongings, uh, an outdated TV on the wall and uh, a little bathroom that's uh, separate. It's cosy, but this has been home for the last 18 months or so. Alistair walks in and closes the door behind him, takes a deep breath. <sighs> okay. And he lies down on the bed, just like takes a second to think. And he brings up his right hand and kind of turns it over and looks at it. As you look at it, um, you do feel a tingle in your fingertips, that warmth, but you don't quite know how to feel about it. It's, okay. it's strange. It's almost like your mind is brushing the edges of some object it can't quite find. Like when you you remember a, a phrase, even a word or two from something, and you're trying to place it. Mm. You kind of get little glimpses, but it's unfamiliar and strange, and you can't quite get a hold of it. Okay. And your phone rings. Oh. I, yeah, pick it up. Bring, bring. Bring, bring. That's not my phone. Bring, bring. Oh, bring. Ah, that's my phone. <laughs> All right. Alice picks it up. Hey, Zoe. Hey, buddy boy. Uh, how's it going? Yeah, uh, I just had a had a meeting, which was interesting. Ooh. Are you in trouble? I thought so, but apparently not, no. That sounds unlikely. No, uh, well, yeah, I was... Um, I told you I was in Belgium last week. Yeah, lucky. Yeah, it was... Uh, I didn't get to see much of it, though. We were kind of only out at night, which... Was a shame. Anyway, uh, I would have thought that suited you. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know. Uh, anyway, yeah, we kind of had debrief, and um, yeah, they were a bit. They had some questions, but did you mess something up? No, I mean not intentionally. Apparently, I don't know. I, I mean, I can't really talk about it, but. Well, that's not your fault then, is it? No. I mean, and you're still, you're a trainee. You're supposed to be under supervision. That's what you said, right? You are still like a trainee. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. No. So it's whoever was in charge. That's their problem, right? I hope so. Yeah, I, it kind of ended up being a, a lot more of a thing than we thought it was. So I think that's kind of where it came from. Anyway, yeah, no, I'm, I'm good. I'm fine. Great. I'm just um, calling you to remind you to eat because I feel like the last time I talked to you, I don't know, it had been like a day since you had eaten anything. As he's talking, Alistair stands up and walks to the little bar fridge. And he's like, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm, I'm, uh, he's rummaging around in the fridge for something to eat. He's like, yeah, no, I, I remember that most of the time. Uh-huh. And when was the last time you had, oh, I don't know, like a proper seven hours, eight hours sleep? Uh, look, I've had a lot of stuff on and, um... You've been saying that for years... You'll be very proud of me. I got six and a half hours last week. Last night. Last, last night. week? Last Sorry. night. Last week. Look, I'm I'm not saying I don't trust you. I'm just saying that your track record of actually, like, taking care of yourself is not great. Yeah, well, I'm getting there. I know. Like, I think you're doing better. At least you're not living on chocolate milk now. You're right. It's more of a supplementary diet as Alistair opens his fridge and opens a packet of chocolate milk and takes out 
a salad, like a, you know, like a packed uh, Caesar salad in a Just container. Put some multivitamins in the milk. Yeah, no, he's he's got his milk and he's got like a Caesar salad. Anyway, uh, looks like I might be spending a bit more time back back at base now. Anyway, for the next little while. Well, so long as you actually kind of get into a routine. Yeah, I hope so. I just want to make sure you're not pushing yourself too hard, you know. Yeah, think so. No, I'm. I'm and okay. um, I was going to ask. Yeah. Are you going okay? Um, with everything. Yeah. Yeah. No, I. I'm feel. I'm feeling pretty good. I feel like. You know, there's there's been some things that I've been trying to work out, and I I think I'm making some progress, and. Um, yeah, I'm feeling like I'm, I'm doing okay. That's good. Got some, um, yeah. Look, I know I, I'm not speaking from experience. I'm not trying to, you know, be a know-it-all or anything, but losing a close friend is hard. And I know that you, I know he's not lost, lost, but anyway, I'm just saying it's hard and... You know, if you ever need a break, you can always come back to mum and me. Mum would love to see you more. Like, I know you're technically, like, geographically further away than you were before, but, you know, yeah. if you want to take a week off, like, I'm on, I'm on leave in about a month. You can Are always you? come and stay. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I mean, I've still got about two semesters left, but... I'll have some good leave before I have to go back into honors. Okay, well, that's that's great. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know if they'll if they'll let me, uh, but yeah, maybe I. Yeah, well, this whole mysterious government agency that's not a government agency thing—it sounds a little strict, which I'm honestly surprised you went for. Like, okay, look, I'm not knocking it. You gotta you gotta make your own path a lot of the time, and. I'm glad that you're you're doing stuff that you love, but to be honest, the, look, I remember you trying to tunnel under the school fence at recess, and you were yeah. in like kindergarten. I'm just surprised that you would go into you know. Yeah, I wasn't I wasn't great with the structural integrity of tunnels back then, was I? Um, I was getting dirt out of my hair for like a week. Anyway, yeah, I guess so. You you'd be surprised. It's um, it's it's a little bit more relaxed than than you might think here, and uh, the people are pretty good. Um, That's but, good. Yeah. Anyway, I better go. Um, but just wanted to check in, and you know, let me know if there's anything I can be be doing. Yeah. Or, you know, if you need me to send you some care packs of, I don't know, fruit. Do you eat fruit? I. You don't eat fruit, do you? Not often. Ow! Oh. Uh, Alistair, like, cut his finger as he was opening the salad. <laughs> He's like, you'd be surprised the lengths I'm going to to try and eat better. So long as you're looking after yourself, <sighs> okay. Get a band-aid for that. I am. And thank you. Uh, say hi to mum for me. I will. But you should call her uh, yourself when you get a chance. Yeah. I know. What? I know. Schedules are hard. What time, time does difference. she finish work again? Uh, she usually finishes about four thirty. Four thirty. Time difference. Yeah. That's early for you. Anyway, uh, well, I'll figure that out. No, just text her. I know she's hopeless time. at replying. Just text her. But okay, she'll get back to you. Anyway, love you. I love you too.
She hangs up. Alistair gets a Band-Aid for his thumb. <laughs> All right. As you are taping your thumb up uh, and preparing to tackle this salad, uh, your phone begins to ring again. What? Is she- As you pick it up, oh. uh, you see Bernie Todd in the caller ID. The desert is lonely. The desert is cold. The desert has no name. It is a never-ending expanse of amber sand and cracked dry ground. The terrain flows in gentle dips and ridges and flat plains. Above, the pinks, purples and oranges of a perpetual twilight are spread out against the sky. No sun is visible, just light from the horizon and long, long shadows. This is the desert, the liminal space between the layers of our world. It is the border, the edge, the home of lost and forgotten things. Here and there are strange sights. Cars sitting half buried in drifts of sand. Children's forts. A man's hat from a bygone era. A three-wheeled bike. Big and small, these lost objects are now part of the desert. Through this wasteland of silence, a single figure trudges. Dressed in fraying clothes with a tattered blanket wrapped around his shoulders, he moves at a slow and steady pace. Ernest Marsh is wearing the same clothes he was from before. He is wearing his brother's jacket. He is wearing the tan-coloured button-up shirt beneath it. Uh, The back is still stained with the mud from when he was knocked over by Sherman. His pants are worn now with rips at the knees and the bottoms are fraying from the constant rubbing against the sand. His shoes have gotten extremely worn. The the soles are almost falling out. His clothes are frayed and aging. The large, almost like a poncho blanket, protects him from the swirling wind and the, uh, the sand as it beats against him. His sandy blonde hair runs down past his shoulders and on his face is a short, scraggly, unkept, unmaintained beard. After six months of day in, day out walking, he is extremely tired and looks it. As you trudge on, Ernest, you pass a colossal oil tanker grounded in the sand. You survey the rust-stained hull and the gentle swaying of its rigging in the breeze. As time passes, you see a whole house. It looks like maybe a small farm shack from a forgotten time. It's completely abandoned. You continue walking. Your shadow stretches out ahead of you, long, thin, and monstrous. After six long months in the desert, you found no matter what direction you face, no matter where the light seems to come from, your shadow is always ahead of you, always stretched out as if you are following it. As you walk, you cannot help but watch your shadow. You've grown used to this, used to the way it moves, the way it contorts and changes itself. You watch now as it performs this act of contortion growing large 
in the shoulders and torso. You watch as the hands become long claws, as antlers grow from the head, which in turn elongates into an animal shape. Your shadow has become a wendigo, and it looms large ahead of you. Silently, it howls to the stars. And then the scene begins. That nightmare that defines your life plays out in shadowy detail on the ground ahead of you. The camp. Children hiking, canoes in the water, tents pitched. The flickering of the firelight. Then the monster comes, towering terrible and tall. The children flee from it. But one by one the Wendigo pounces. The claws rise and fall. You see the tents torn. The bodies slumped. And the Wendigo howls. The shadows resolve themselves into a small figure, alone, shaking, wearing a jacket that is far too big for him. It takes this shape until you lay down and go to sleep in the snare. been here for six months now and you've never eaten. You sleep because sleep feels right but you know that you don't need to. But sleep is an escape of sorts. When you sleep you dream of home. You dream of Alistair. You dream of the town. You dream of your parents but... Inevitably, the same dreams that you have had for years and years creep in. Dreams of that night, of that camp, of the years afterwards, living in the shadow of it. When you wake, the light is the same, the silence is the same, you can only hear your own breathing, the sound of your feet in the sand. This is a quiet place. There is no dawn, there is no dusk, there is just this perpetual twilight. No way to mark the passing of time. Six months is your best guess at how long you've been here, but it could be longer. As you wake, you are half buried in the sand, as if the desert is trying to slowly cover you over. It's only now that you realise something is different. And it takes a while, but you begin to realise that you can actually hear something other than your own breathing other than that gentle push of wind, the granular sound of sand moving. You can hear the rustle of feathers and a scraping sound. Ernest looks up from his shadow again and looks around him to try and pinpoint what the sound is coming from, if it's just the way the wind is travelling through a uh, old car or something like that and is trying to find the source of it. As you leave yourself up on an elbow, uh, a little distance away you see a strange shape. It takes a little while for your eyes to adjust as you wake, but mm, this is not another one of those lost things. And as you get yourself up and standing, you realise that this might be the first living thing you have seen your time in the desert. The figure, still some distance away, is 
large. It seems to be bird-like, hunched over. It seems to be sorting through a pile of stray odds and ends, random lost junk. It's facing away from you, but even so, it's crouched. Its shoulders rounded. It's far taller than you. Ernest gets to his feet completely now and looks at the thing and takes a few steps towards it and his voice is going to croak out very rarely used and a bit dusty uh, <clears throat> hello uh, hello um <laughs> excuse me as you approach you can see that its feet are taloned bird's feet there's a silky sheen to these black feathers and as you speak it turns now slowly and you can see its face amid this dark feathery plumage where you expect to see the hooked beak of some monstrous bird of prey you see a human face pale and smooth with strong features but completely dark eyes the feathers seem to sprout from its skin like hair follicles beginning at the scalp the neck and behind the ears and it looks at you with a calm politeness it holds up its hands between its talons it's showing you what it's found two socks baby socks in fact one pink and one yellow and in a strange, calm voice, it says, I wonder why it's always the left sock that ends up here. Do you know? Uh. <laughs> uh. No, no, I don't. I don't know. Hmm. It does seem strange. After all, the probability would be both socks, surely. Oh. If one was going to go, it'd be 50%, wouldn't it? Mm, but it is always the left. Oh, well. And um, it tucks the socks somewhere into the mass of its feathers. It stands now, still hunched, but it now towers head and shoulders well above you. Uh, are, are you... Are you like, like me? Like, are you st stuck here too? Hmm... That is a good question. Did, did a cube bring you here as well? Well, let, let's not get ahead of ourselves. One thing at a time. In many ways, I am like you. In many ways, you are like me. We share an autonomy. We share a nature. But in other ways, no, I'm not like you. I am other than you. And no, I was not ever brought here. This is my home. This is my desert. But then I am getting ahead of myself. It extends a clawed, taloned hand towards you, palm up. You can call me Carrion. I am the shepherd of the desert. Ernest holds his hand out in the same way, palm up, and takes a second and then... Um, I'm Ernest Marsh. I'm. He looks around, looks at all the, the strange items. Looks down at himself in his shadow, then looks up and says, um, "I suppose I'm a, I'm a lost thing in in your desert." 
Yes, this is a desert of lost things, and it is my duty to care for them. And now that extends to you. You're both sort of standing there with your hands outstretched. <laughs> it gently sort of puts its hand underneath yours and sort of like holds it as if it wants you to kind of hold its hand too. It's a strange gesture, not something that you're familiar with, but he seems quite insistent that this is the way to greet someone. <laughs> okay, yep. And he, he begins to kind of lever it up and down. He says, I believe this is how your your kind says hello. Uh, pretty, pretty, pretty close. Yeah, yeah. And Ernst kind of brings his other hand up and turns Carrion's hand so it's like horizontal, and then like shakes it a little bit more normally. It's like a little bit more like this. Ah, I see. The angle is different. The angle is important. Well, you know, some people they like holds like around the wrist of Carrion's. Like some people do it like this. It's different for each person. Mm. Strange. But then there are a lot of strange things in. Well, let's call it your world. Now, wait, wait. So, I mean, I presumed, considering I've been walking for a long time, but this, this isn't your my, world. Yeah. Hmm. He he sits down on the ground. He crosses his large uh, avian legs and brings his arms around to sit in his lap. You can see now that his arms are feathered. Almost like wings. They are somewhere between wings and arms. Uh, it's difficult to say. His phy- physiognomy doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It seems natural and fluid to look at, but when you think about it, you don't really know what he is. And he looks at you and he says, Well, I suppose for your peace of mind, I can attempt to explain. Your world, the world that you know, is my world too. But there is more to your world than what you see. The desert, for example, lies at the edge of your world. It is the border, the entranceway in some regards. Hmm. Perhaps best to think of it like a spectrum of light. You know how a spectrum of light works, yes? Yeah, it's like that Pink Floyd album. Yes, it's like that Pink Floyd album. You see one thing, but in reality, there are many different layers that make up that one thing. Some of them you perceive very easily, others you don't perceive at all. There is one world, effectively, but there are many layers to it. Some that are seen, some that are unseen, some that are only felt, some that are never felt. The desert is like the seam between those layers. It is the net that catches what falls through, hence the lost things. Uh, It's not the worst place you could be, but it's not where you belong. No, no, it's... it's, I don't think it is. I mean, it was kind of an accident, I think, that I got here. I don't know why the, the cube did what it did or what the cube was. I thought it was a, a Rubik's cube or something like that or like just a fancy old thing, but like... Mm. There are many things of that nature, although few that are exactly the same. No, 
whatever it was that brought you here is something that should not have existed in the first place. It was a, a tear between the layers. And it had been waiting. Something you did seem to bring it back to itself, which is a worry. Yeah, I should think on that. That is a worry. So so is is the cube here as well? It wasn't it wasn't here when I came here with the doctor. Well that is not really something that I am told. The cube may still be here, although if it was in my desert I would know about it, but I suspect that it has reverted to where it came from. Hmm. So another one of these spectrum things. Yes. So wait, so the cube wasn't didn't come from here. No. Then why why did it bring me here? Nothing comes from here. Things go here, nothing comes back. Except me. Right. Hmm. Well, it has been nice to talk and he <laughs> begins to stand up. Wait, hold on a second. Wait, I don't belong here. Mm, yes and no. But I was... Is there a way you to didn't get out? You mean to come here. That's not the same as not belonging here. But I... I belong, I belong there. I belong at home. I, I have things I need to, to do to... Mm, there is a time for everything. There's a season for every activity under the heavens. But now is the time for walking. Come. And he begins to walk. Ernest pauses for a second and looks back down at his shadow as it's beyond its usual routine of morphing and changing and is going to look up from it for probably the first time really in the, the months that it's been and is going to take off at a quick walk behind the Birdman. You walk with Carrion, who strides with long steps through the sand, and you have to walk quite fast to keep up with him. Mm. As you walk, your shadow stretches out, performing its now common contortions. Carrion looks at it and looks up at you. As you walk, he says, You have a nasty shadow there. Why do you carry it with you like that? I, I don't carry it. People don't. I don't carry a shadow. It's it's something. Mm. Everyone has has a shadow. It's as you go to gesture for carrions, you see that carrion has no shadow. Oh well, I mean, maybe those rules don't apply here. Um, but uh, I don't carry it around. It's it's bound to me. Mm. In a sense, you are right. But in another sense, you are quite wrong. I think, really, you are bound to it at the moment. It leads you. You don't lead it. But there will be time for this. Tell me, what is it showing you? Uh, well, it's... It's showing me... Uh, uh, a, a a thing that happened. Uh, it's showing me uh, 
when when I was a boy, uh, I was on a camp. My first camp, I was a. Um, my granddad and my brother were able to convince my parents to let me go on it, and it was a three-day camp off into the mountains. And on the first night of the camp, we were all around the campfire, and I was about to go back to my tent when I realised that none of the boys from my tent were were there. I looked out and I saw them heading off into the trees, and I knew that we weren't allowed to do that, so I. I went after them to try and bring them back. I went after them for a while and then I found them. They were, they brought a box of, of like mini fireworks that they were going to send off. I tried to tell them it was a dumb idea that we'd all get in trouble because we were a tent and so we'd all get in trouble and they didn't listen to me. They sent the, the, they, they sent the fireworks off and we got in a lot of trouble and we were sent back to our tents and that's when we started to hear the howls. My, the, the camp leaders said that we had upset some coyotes or something with the sound, but it wasn't coyotes. Within a few minutes, the entire camp got raided by monsters. They started to attack everyone. The kids scattered. I hid in my tent and everything went quiet. After a little bit, I, I came out and one of the monsters found me. I, it cornered me against a tree and it was gonna kill me like it did nearly everyone else, like the rest of its pack did. But then my brother showed up. My brother was a camp leader. He was one of the leaders of the camp and he he attacked it. He used a, a log splitter axe and he killed it. And then he, and Erst, grabs his jacket very tightly. He said, he gave this to me and he told me that I was the camp leader now, that I was, I had a responsibility. He told me that he had seen some of the kids heading back towards the river that we had boated across, we had canoed across, and he told me to find them and lead them through, and lead them out back to home. Another one of them came and he killed that one as well. He lit up a flare and went off running into the woods to draw the rest of the pack out after him. And I went off to find the rest of the kids. I found a few of them hanging around in a little cave and I was able to talk them into following me. I led them down into a little into a little valley and I saw the flare go out on the top of the mountain. That's when the rest of the pack came after us again. We squeezed through some rocks and one by one we were all taken until me and one other boy got out and we canoed up the river. That's what it shows me. Hmm.
Do you like jokes, Ernest? Um, what? No, uh, yes, I do. Yes. Yeah. I know a good one. What did the ocean say to the beach? Nothing. It just waved. How about another one? What do you call a fish wearing a bow tie? So fish-decated. He looks at you. I <laughs> just looks at him. You see, Ernest, there is a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. It's not good to get too caught up in either one. All things in their place. All things in their time. But come. And he continues to lead you. Time passes. You continue to walk. At points, you lay down to sleep. And when you sleep, Carrion sorts through the lost things he finds along the way. When you wake, you walk again. You repeat this process for days, weeks. Who can say? At one point, though, you begin to crest a ridge, a taller ridge than you have seen uh, so far in your travels. And as you make your way along the top of the ridge you can see down into the next valley here you can see a great pile of lost things vehicles ships packing containers there's a great mound of them and as you watch you can see movement as strange figures flit from piece of junk to piece of junk in and out there seems to be dozens of them it's hard to make them out. They are fuzzy, shadowy figures. They seem to have light speckling inside their shadowy depths. And they too seem to be searching through these lost things. You can see some of them are draped in rags. Some of them seem to be wearing ponchos or blankets similar to you to protect them from the wind. Ernest turns to Carrion and points at them and says... Are they more things like me? Or are they more like you? Hmm. In some ways, they are very like you, yes, but more so like me. They are things that, one way or another, belong here. Not because they are lost, but because they belong on the borders. And they are here too, so they are part of my duty to care. If I can, I care for them, but they do not care for me. Let's put it that way. So they're sentient? They're... They are sentient, but not in a way that you would quite recognize. But they organize. Well, they tried to overthrow me 
while time isn't really something that we use here. They got very antsy, though. I'll say that. Yeah. But these things come and go. A time for war, a time for peace. A time to do or die. A time for this, yes, and also a time to rest. Oh, I'm alright. Let's keep going. Okay. You continue to walk. At one point, as you travel, Carrion asks you, you talked a lot about your brother when you told me of your shadow. Do you love your brother? Of course. No more than of course? A matter of duty? Just because something's a duty doesn't mean it's begrudging. I suppose. You love your family. And it is my duty, because of course I love him, but when no one else will, you have to take that place as well. So it doesn't really... Like, we always got on. And, you know, I'm, the, I'm a younger brother, so it wasn't always great. But when no one else is going to do it, you have to rise to the occasion, I suppose. Hmm. Perhaps. But what did he mean to you? You wear his clothes. I guess I do, yeah. Uh, he was an example of who I could be, of what I could do. He was that he was old enough to be the example of everything I wanted to be. And, well, after everything happened with the monsters and we got back to town, no one really listened to me. They'd take stuff parts of what I said and would read into them and ignore other parts. They didn't believe in the monsters. They thought that the scout leaders had done this. That one of the scout leaders had gone mad and they, they blamed the leaders. They blamed the organization. They blamed my brother. The town turned against my family in that kind of way. For, for a while I was a ghost on top of my chair to my family. I was a burden my mum and dad had to, a cross they had to bear. So no one else was going to wear his clothes. No one else was going to remember him for who he was. No one else was going to clean the graffiti off his grave. Were you ever angry with him? He was just about the only person I wasn't angry with. I think that's a mistake. Well, what would you know? Just about everything. Oh, uh, yes. That was a dumb thing to say. Yeah, I, yeah. I don't say this to hurt you, Ernest. I, you are in my charge. My job is to care for you. I say it to care for you. By all accounts, your brother was a very fine young man. A very brave young man. But he also gave you responsibility that no child should have been given. And to be fair, he was given responsibility that he was not fit to be given. No one was expecting what happened to you. No one was prepared. But he passed his responsibility on to you and gave you the best chance that he could. Understandable, yes. The good thing to do, 
it's okay to be angry with him for what happened to you, for his share of the responsibility. But to wear his clothes, to hang on to him in that way, because nobody else was, this seems hard for you. Perhaps not good for you. There's a time to hold on, and there's a time to let go. Is he here? Your brother? No. Your brother was never a lost thing. You lost him, but he himself, no. Okay. Alright. And this looks down at his jacket again and in the process sees the, the shadow moving in front of him again. And there's a moment where the two kind of mix and he sees almost like the shadow dance upon the jacket, like the jacket's a part of the shadow leading before him. And in that, he sees the shadow form for the first time, actually, into the shape of his brother. And he pauses for a moment before it begins to morph again, growing horns and elongated as it becomes the Wendigo as well. And he looks up from his jacket. There is something I would like you to see. We will take a detour. Perhaps she will be pleased to see you. You continue to travel, and this time Carrion takes you to a rock formation. You've seen one or two of these in the distance. This is the first time you've ever got close to one. This rock formation is uh, strange and elongated. It's studded with shallow caves and alcoves. And even from a distance, you can see that one of these caves, close to the ground, has been crammed with junk inside it, around it, outside of it. At the entrance to the shallow cave as you approach, you can see slabs of wood that have been roughly carved into with some kind of tool. And they read, keep out and go away. Carrion crouches down and points inside the cave. I believe you know her. Ernest peers through a crack in the wood. You can see Dr. Pike. She is sitting on the ground, still wearing her coat, her glasses still cracked. She is as she was the day that the two of you were taken by the cube. She's sitting on the floor in this small space. She's crammed this cave full of whatever pieces of technology she's been able to scrounge together. There's microwaves and uh, heating elements. There's bits and pieces of all sorts of different things. And she seems to be uh, assembling something on the ground. She has a glass jar filled with sand. And she seems to be absentmindedly taking notes as she examines it. And she mutters out loud to herself. Carrion says, She's retreated. Built herself a facsimile of her old life. She clings to it for comfort. Not that all such things are bad, but the act of hiding from them, well, it keeps you from seeing what is really in front of you. You can talk to her if you like. Ernest is going to peer down and see if she has a shadow. 
She does. Is it as intense as his? It's hard to tell because she's in this cramped space uh, and not a whole lot of the natural light gets in there. It seems like the whole space she is in is somewhat filled with shadow. Erst is going to knock on the the wooden panelling. She doesn't look up from her work. She doesn't react. Erst is going to speak through. Doctor? Mm, yes. Mm. Have you brought me my coffee? I asked for that... 20 minutes ago. If you want your scholarship uh, uh, work experience stuff checked off, then you better be sharpish about these things. Uh, Dr. Pike, I'm. it's me, Ernest Marsh. We came here together. Yes, yes. Any intern worth their salt knows how to bring coffee fast. Look, this is an important battery of tests. If you're not here to help, then you might as well leave. Okay. Let's go back away from the, the paneling and turn to Carrion. Why is she... Why, why is she acting like that? Is Well, for some, the reality of where they are is too difficult. They would rather hide away. They would rather comfort themselves with the familiar. And one day she may free herself from that but she has locked herself in a cage because the cage to her feels safer hmm you haven't locked yourself in a cage at least not a physical cage I'll help her if I can but she has to accept it first is there anything I can do I don't think so well then let's get back on track one more detour and then we'll get where we are going you continue to walk you sleep you wake you walk you sleep you wake you walk you sleep you wake you walk you continue as you cross one of the flat plains carrion draws your attention to a strange shape slumped in the distance you see this now this is an interesting one this is truly a lost thing. As you approach, your eyes fall on a grotesque sight. It's a large creature. It seems to be built of many limbs, body parts cobbled together, pieces of humans, and augmented with machinery. It is terrifying, and it is terrible, and it is very, very dead. Yet, as Carrion shows you, from its stomach there is a hole where something has torn its way out, burrowed through. You can see chunks of this flesh strewn in the wake of drag marks, where something has clawed itself free and dragged itself away. You see, this is what happens when a devotion to the one you love, with no checks placed upon it, is allowed to run free. Utter destruction and ruin, all in the name of loyalty and justice. That poor creature will not find what he is looking for, though. But he will never cease to look. He will tear apart reality in the attempt. But he won't find what he's looking for. Is it something like you? 
Hmm. Or is it more like those things in the sand from before? These are difficult questions. He is not quite like anyone else. He is... Hmm. Stranger, perhaps. More primordial, perhaps. He is extremely wanted, though, but not by those he is seeking. Carrion points to a distant ridge where you can see that a strange, ramshackled, rickety tower has been erected. It's at the highest point of the ridge, and even from here you can see that there is a damaged, dented satellite dish rotating slowly at the summit. Something is trying to broadcast. And Carrion says, I should probably do something about that. But right now, I'm focused on you. Ernest looks at the the shack and looks at the uh, the dish and looks at Carrie and says, "So whatever came out of this thing is broadcasting. How can it's broad? Is it broadcasting just within the desert or to other places as well?" He is reaching out to anyone and anything that he can reach. I don't know how many are hearing him, but that is out of my jurisdiction. I am here to care for the lost things, and he is something I cannot care for. But there will be a time for him. A time for justice, a time for retribution, and a time for forgiveness too. But not yet. His time is not yet. But you, Ernest, your time is now. And you are still in the time for walking. Great. I love walking. I I do like walking, but there's a lot of walking. There's not a lot else to do here. That that, that is true. I seem to find things much quicker when I'm with you, though. I was walking for a long time and I didn't find any of these people. A lost sheep needs a shepherd. Traveller needs a guide. But, as I said, there was a time for you to wander on your own, but that time has ended. And soon your time to spend with me will end. You walk, you sleep, you wake, you walk, you sleep, you wake, you walk, you sleep. And eventually, a new sight appears on the horizon. It takes you some time to make out the details. But when you do, Ernest, you feel a pang of homesickness like nothing else. You realise that what this is, this sight that has appeared on the fuzzy horizon, is a giant tree. And as you get closer, you realise it is a fig tree, deeply rooted into the small ridge from which it grows. You have not seen a living plant since you got here. And something in you just longs to be close to something that lives and grows in this place. Mm. As you approach, you can see that someone has built a small hut beneath the canopy. And as Carrion raises an arm in greeting, you see a small figure step out and wave back. I think the two of you will enjoy each other's company. As you come under the gentle shade of the great tree, this figure is revealed to be an old man with wild hair and beard 
He's dressed in a strange mishmash of clothes, some of which seem to be singed. And he grins at you with a slightly unhinged look in his eye and he goes to shake your hand. Ha <laughs> Winston Wither, good to see you. Carrie, lovely to see you too. <laughs> it's good to see you too, Winston. Yes. I would like you to meet Ernest Marsh. Uh, Ernie, lovely to meet you. Holds out his hand. Winston Wither. Um, uh, hello. He's, Ernest is very taken aback to find someone kind of living and thriving almost in this place and he shakes Winston's hand. Ooh. 